Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskas. The success and applications of cell and gene therapies are seemingly limitless. And economic forecasts project a compound annual growth rate of almost 40% over the next eight years. This rapid expansion is a double-edged sword for biomanufacturers of cell and gene therapy products. On the one hand, obviously, the monumental growth is great for business. Yet on the flip side, biomanufacturers are faced with solving numerous challenges of scaling up production workflows, from raw material sourcing to supply chain management to the adoption of new and innovative production modalities. Having a trusted global partner that can help organizations navigate the tumultuous bioprocessing waters of cell and gene therapy production is not only advantageous, but often the key to continued success in this space. I sat down recently with Executive Vice President of Biopharm Production at Avantour, Dr. Jared Brophy, to discuss some of the precautions and improvements for cell and gene therapies and how manufacturers can address many of the challenges they face. Let's listen in. Welcome, everyone, to this new GenCast. It's an exciting day today. We're going to talk a little bit about cell and gene therapy. Jared, welcome to this GenCast. Thank you very much, Jeff. Very pleased to be here. So, Jared, we have a couple questions, obviously, for the gen audience, uh, very interested in cell and gene therapy, especially when it comes to the production um, of uh, cell and gene therapy. So I have some questions for you um, that I know that the audience will be interested in knowing the answers to. Um, the first one is, you know, what's the latest progress in the expansion of cell and gene therapies? So say, broadly speaking, are these types of therapies continuing to grow? So I think I think that's one of those simple questions that that's um, the answer. The simple answer is yes. Uh, the number of dimensions upon which they're growing is is interesting and worth spending a little bit of time on. So you know, is 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 are these therapies continuing to be funded? Uh, we all know the IPO space has been a little bit constrained lately, but VC funding of cell and gene therapies continues to be very very strong. There was a huge pulse in the last year, and you know it's retreated a little bit from that, but Groups, I think, seem to think that we're at a kind of a pre-pandemic level of funding for cell and gene therapy, which is still pretty, pretty considerable and pretty specific. On the therapies themselves, we're seeing a number of things. So, you know, once you've got a label and approval as a pharma company, you know, the most successful use of that is to is to expand. So expand the label, expand the geographies. And in the last year, we've seen, you know, some of the big players in this space BMS, Novartis, Kite Gilead, Bluebird do a significant amount of label and geography expansions. And that's significant. That really means that you're you know, working that therapy hard. Um, and in the case of Kite Gilead, you know, they're really now positioning their product as a second line therapy for acute lymphoblastic leukemia from fourth line. So those label expansions are standard blocking and tackling for sophisticated biopharma, and we're seeing those plays come through, you know, very, very strongly from companies like that. We're seeing, you know, thirdly, we're seeing growth of cell therapy. So brand new labels, brand new approvals. Um, Janssen with with Legend, the Chinese company, Biomarin, PGC, bringing forward new approvals for both cell therapy and gene therapy. And a number of approvals are also expected by the end of the year. You know, who knows? One can never 
guarantee these, but we're looking at Unicure CSL, we're looking at Bering, we're looking at Altara. So there's an expectation that the number of approved therapies will continue to, to grow as well. And then where am I up to? Three or four or five? Maybe the last one worth spending some time on is the expansion of the therapeutic areas for cell and gene therapy. So traditionally, you know, for gene therapy, it was um, uh, monoenzymic diseases or rare diseases. For cell therapy, it started with pediatric liquid tumors. We've seen those therapies now expand to solid tumors, but we've also seen very non-traditional areas be considered. Um, for example, inflammatory diseases, there's uh, significant work in areas like lupus, uh, animal studies on cardiac fibrosis with cell therapy, a number of early phase works in neurodegeneration with cell therapy as well. So overall, I would say the field looks very, very robust. The earlier advances have been built upon. Um, the durability and the efficacy of cell therapy have been proven in real time. Um, and I think uh, we're, we're in for some very nice expansion of both spaces in the short, medium and long term. So that's great. I, I think with that expansion or the idea of that expansion, something we we talk a lot about at Gen, uh, write a lot about at Gen as well, is you know the challenges that come with uh, the development of these cell and gene therapies. So what do you see as the major scale up challenges for cell and gene therapies, and and what do you see as some of the raw material challenges for cell and gene therapies? Yeah, and again, we have to reflect on the pandemic. We've just worked our way through. So the the industry in general, you know, worked through um, significant supply chain challenges. Now, I think the industry worked through well. There was unprecedented collaboration across between producers, technology providers, biopharma, CMOs, CDMOs. But nonetheless, you know, some of the materials and some of the production facilities, some of the skilled labor that were required for cell and gene therapy was in short supply for the last two years. I think we're beginning to come out of that a little bit, but some of the materials just have not been produced at scale, at GMP scale or at the scale required or in the regions required with the specific uh, pharmacopoeia labels that are required for uh, effective manufacture of those cell and gene therapies. So what we're finding and what we're doing ourselves is working hard to develop some of these new materials, developing hard to position them uh, in the geographies where they're required, getting the stability data, the GMP data, if it's single use, the extractables and leachables data, um, and all the uh, technical collateral and support materials that are required to position these products well. And you know, this is this is not a, an insignificant challenge. You know, in, in gene therapy, many of the innovations have come from hospitals are from researchers in R&D labs who have focused on the clinical effect and perhaps even the molecular biology of what they intend to achieve, but who don't necessarily have the experience or the scars on their back from large-scale GMP manufacturing. Um, and, you know, it, it's up to suppliers like ourselves and technology providers like ourselves to shore up that, that leg of the stool. So, Jerry, one of the things that uh, also that we talk a lot about uh, is this difference between, you know, certain types of therapies, you know, allogeneic versus autologous therapies. So maybe you could tell the audience a little bit more about what the difference is between those two. And more importantly, how do the differences impact production methods? 
Yeah, so and I guess this audience will will understand autologous therapy, therapy is also called ex vivo cell therapy, whereby uh, essentially in most cases T cells from a patient from that patient are taken and engineered and expanded and returned to the patient. Allogeneic is that you've got a feedstock of of, of cells which you can engineer um, and return to many patients. So. Given the difficulties implied in the first compared to the second, why would anybody go autologous? Well, it's because allogeneic is hard. Um, you know, there are issues with uh, graft versus host disease, whereby T cells, no matter how carefully and how much stemness they've got, can cause can cause difficulties. Uh, scale up still has to be resolved. So all the initial labels and all the initial label expansions have focused in the in this space, if, if you're not talking about stem cells or mesenchymal stem cells or hematopoietic stem cells, you're talking about autologous CAR-T. Um, so the industry has focused on trying to address the manufacturing and activity. Scale-up is, if you think about it, it's not scale-up because one one dose, one patient is one dose is one patient. So what you're talking about is scale-out. So instead of making millions of doses, you're making hundreds of patients well. Um, it's difficult because in autologous CAR-T, the difficulty is, in many cases, the health of the cells. You're taking cells from a very sick child, a very sick patient. You're engineering those cells, you're expanding them and, and wanting them to put them back in. Nonetheless, there has been significant improvements in the space. And this is where technology providers and companies have, have worked very well. And what they're often working at is standardizing the process, closing the process so that the fermentation bags, the quality samples that have to be taken, don't expose the process to more risk. Using automation so that some of the perhaps more risk-exposing uh, activities of, of human intervention are minimized. And that has driven, I think Carl June reflected in spring, that we've now had uh, 100,000 doses provided of autologous CAR-T and probably realistically probably sorry, 10,000, excuse me, 10,000 doses and probably realistically the same through hospital clinical trials. So those problems are increasingly being overcome. Nonetheless, it's difficult. So again, why not pivot to allogeneic? As I say, there are significant efforts, significant investment, but the field still feels it will be a number of years before there are allogeneic approvals. Some of the reasons is that the autologous therapies have stolen ground. Like I said, you've already got second line treatments for some pediatric diseases. That means that those treatments are now standard of care. So in these spaces, getting access to patient for clinical trials is often an issue, uh, just ethically uh, and just from a patient number point of view. And there are now fewer patients who may be interested in allogeneic trials if there are standard of care uh, treatments with autologous CAR-T. Nonetheless, one would expect to see allogeneic improvements come through as the molecular biology is increasingly being understood as uh, host versus uh, graft disease, as the molecular and clinical biology of that is understood, one would expect some of these things to be coming through and, and that should be helpful. W one of the issues with autologous CAR-T, and increasingly an issue if you press people, what they're worried about is vein to vein time. So the fact that of course, the cells have to be uh, aphorized from the infected patient, then they have to be treated, they have to be quality released and returned to that patient. So what we are seeing in this case is a change. I'm not sure it's a change yet, but a desire to perform more and more of these activities at point of care. 
so instead of having large autologous centers, what can be done at the patient's bedsides? And where you're seeing this is real thought leaders in Dana-Farber, in Mass General, in, in, in Memorial Sloan Kettering, in Imperial College in London, in EGR in Paris, starting to figure out you know, how they can offer the whole treatment from soup to nuts, including all the other requirements for a desperately ill patient at the bedside instead of taking it to a remote uh, environment. Now, of course, in theory, autologous would solve for this issue because in a, in a very simply, one might, would be able to reach up and pull down a dose uh, of autologous cells for a treatment. But in practice, it's going to be many, many years away from that. One further difference maybe to, to reflect on is the, 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 the space of digitization. In biopharma, increasingly, we're hearing about you know, biopharma 4.0. We're hearing about digital twins. Um, in autologous CAR-T, there, there really is no such thing as a digital twin. Every dose is unique. So it, it, it limits our ability to learn what can be done with other patients. If you've seen one dose of autologous CAR-T, you've seen one dose of autologous CAR-T. I think as we move to more allogeneic presentations, the role of data and digitization will start, and AI will probably start to have a more significant effect. So I think, you know, as you're saying, uh, with the with the increase in demand for a lot of these therapies, uh, and probably something that's going to arise uh, in the next few years as well. You know, how do you see material availability along with that demand affecting cell and gene therapy scaling, and and what do you think can be done in the light of the current supply chain environment to address these challenges? Yeah. I think what we're going to see is uh, the specific requirements for cell and gene therapy being reflected more in, in the materials, the labels, and the key quality attributes, things like uh, uh, you know, uh, materials of animal origin are, are particularly frowned upon in the cell and gene space. Uh, in, in monoclonal uh, preparations, there are you know, some very significant and sometimes quite harsh treatments by which the monoclonal is separated from the means of production. In cell and gene therapy, increasingly, you want to preserve viability. So um, you do not want to increase the risk by introducing any potentially adventitious or harmful reagents anywhere in the process. So I think the bar is going to go up in terms of things like endotoxin, uh, products of animal origin, even potential for any any viral contamination. And, And as technology providers we are, are reacting to that and we will have to continue to react to that. I think we'll see new considerations in single use. So the extractables and leachables profiles of single use components and manifolds and tubings are well understood for CHO-derived monoclonal antibodies for HEC293s or for T-cells or for JERCATs or for any uh, natural killer cells maybe those extractable and leachables profiles are not as well understood. So I can see a lot of manufacturers reacting and pivoting to develop databases that will position those products as as well as possible. But I think one of the the areas that really deserves a lot of reflection is the CMO, CDMO space, because it's not just materials. It's also the capacity to to develop some of these expansions and, and, and productions. Um, from the recent BPI conference in Boston, you know, it was clearly stated that um, in the cell and gene space, more activities are outsourced than in recombinant proteins and in monoclonal production. 
So, you know, why is that? Um, I think it's in some cases you're talking about um, startups who maybe don't have the, 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 the facilities or maybe even the expertise. Um, I think the flip side of that is CDMOs are developing those expertise. And if you want to be sure that you can work with a trusted partner, then, you know, you are willing to engage with such a CDMO as, as you can. But that, um, that was an interesting observation. And I think the importance of CDMOs in particular for the foreseeable future in scaling up and producing um, cell and gene therapies, not just for clinical trials, but for early phase commercial production is going to be a, is going to be a significant part of this of this universe. So you touched on something in, in uh, your last answer about single-use uh, systems. Um, you know, maybe you could expand upon that a little more. And do you see single-use systems play a role in solving the material source challenges? And if so, how? Yeah, in addition to single-use process components, uh, which I alluded to, you know, the usual suspects in single-use bioreactors and manifolds and tubing, there's a real opportunity to leverage single-use packaging for more complex presentations. So many um, many materials used in cell and gene therapy will be, need to be brought into a clean room. And the ability to do that in double pack single use, I think, is attractive. It's also the case that the volumes are generally lower. So instead of having to bring in one component at a time, one can consider how we can do multi-component uh, buffers or hydrated concentrates or, you know, uh, enzyme buffering uh, um, mixes that will meet the requirements of, of these types of, of unit operations. So I think increasingly we will see utilization of single use, not just for process, but also for presentation of materials into clean room environments for cell and gene therapy. Great. And I think I just have uh, one last question here, Jared. So drawing on your vast experience of about 30 plus years or so uh, in this space, um, if someone were to come to you, gene therapy biomanufacturers, uh, how would you suggest they approach their supplier relationships as they scale? I think in this, in this industry, and I think the COVID pandemic demonstrated this well, you know, everybody has a responsibility to to optimize the the the, the ability of the biopharma industry to to react to healthcare concerns and and suppliers are as interested in doing that as are the the original manufacturers so um we see significant opportunities for improved materials improved presentation of materials improved quality attributes better characterization of materials uh, in the cell and gene therapy space, and we're all learning what those requirements are. But as a as a as a materials provider, we're very interested in pivoting and reacting to these new observations. You know, we have our innovation centres, as, as many of our competitors do. We've got ours in Bridgewater, and we've you know opened up a cell and gene therapy suite there, where we can focus on scaling up materials that we would use in this space. And and it's a great. Um, avenue or theater with which we can engage with our customers and, and try out certain activities. I suspect in this space, our competitors are, are the same. They're interested and engaged and willing to engage in, in supplier partnership uh, conversations, whereby we bring forward the best materials. With the best will in the world, we're, we're at stage zero or, or phase zero or phase one for cell and gene therapy. You know, 
Monoclonal production has been around a number of years. There has been a huge focus on upstream optimization, uh, process optimization. That process optimization is ongoing downstream now. The systems are relatively well characterized. There are few people out there who would claim the same degree of characterization as true of cell and gene therapies. There's a real sense that you know, new generations of technologies will come through, new generations of processes, new generations of materials. And I think there is going to be uh, you know, an incumbent uh, responsibility on, on clinicians, on biopharma companies, and on technology and materials providers to work together to make sure that the potential of these therapies to solve incredibly debilitating and dreadful diseases are, are maximized. And that's going to be through all the responsible parties holding hands and making sure we do the best job we can as a team. Well, Jared, this has been incredibly uh, insightful and uh, no doubt uh, very helpful to the Gen audience. Uh, again, this is something that they're very, very interested in, something we do talk and write about a lot. So I uh, really appreciate your time today and thanks for joining us on this GenCast. That's great. Thanks to the Gen team and uh, I'm delighted to be able to speak to the Gen audience. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Lewiskus.